listening to the Jelly Donut Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I talk to the best and brightest in finance and economics. We'll go beyond just theory and discuss some of the most important real-world macro questions of our time. What happens next and how does all of this end? Pull up a seat and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they specialize in single-origin coffees. They're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I like to start off with usually one or two cups. I make it by hand at home with a pour-over, but it doesn't matter how you make it. You could be using a Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You have to start with really high quality beans and you'll always make sure you have a great cup. So just say no to those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find at a grocery store and upgrade your coffee game. I'm going to make it real easy for you. Here's what you do. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our code JDP10, that's JDP10. And you get $5 off your first purchase. Do it right now while you're thinking about it. You'll be happy you did. Today in the show, we have Marty Bent. Marty is a Bitcoiner. He's also the host of the Tales from the Crypt podcast and the author of the daily newsletter, Marty's Bent. Enjoy my conversation with Marty. Marty, welcome to the podcast. Ryan, thank you for having me. Very uh, happy to be here. (laughs) So it's great to have you. First thing I like to start off with guests is going back to 2008. Talk a little bit about what you were doing and how the global financial crisis kind of affected your life during that time and and ongoing after that. So doxing myself here, I was 17 in 2008, um, the second half of 2008, when uh, the world was going to shit. I was a senior in high school in Philadelphia um, and just so happened uh, really didn't put any thought into taking this class, just took it because a few of my friends were taking it. It took a, a, an elective economics course. And it was, again, in the, the fall quarter of 2008 in high school, my senior year. And um, we had that class every day while the world was going to shit. And luckily for us, our professor, our teacher was very astute and um, really tried to make us aware that the financial crisis was something that should be paid attention to and something that might be a good idea for us to study um, as we head to college. And that um, that class stuck with me uh, in particular. And I went to school to study economics at DePaul University um, the next year uh, to sort of learn uh, how everything could could get uh, as fragile as it was in oh seven oh eight, right and you talked a little bit about on your show how you actually found bitcoin which was an interesting story diving into different types of monetary policy why don't you talk a little bit about that because uh that was super interesting 
Yeah, I, th- I stumbled across Bitcoin, if I remember correctly. Um, I'm pretty sure this is how I found it. Uh, combination of doing research uh, about monetary policy and probably people talking about the price of Bitcoin. But yes, I was yeah, studying economics in college and just Googling stuff on the internet about monetary policy and just trying to figure out stuff uh, by myself doing my own research and somehow came across Bitcoin. I was like, what the hell is this? And um, like most people didn't dive headfirst full on as soon as I found it, but it definitely piqued my interest. And um, when it started popping up in the news, uh, like, like 2012, 2013 as the price uh, began to pop a bit again um, and definitely uh, decided to look more into it as I started an internship at a managed futures fund and was tasked with following uh, currency markets. And um, so the idea of a uh, digital currency really, really interested me at the time. It was just a combination of what I was studying, uh, where I was working, and um, my uh, probably uh, my um, penchant for being an early adopter of, of technologies. Yeah, and you've talked in the past about your work at the Fund of Fund and doing research and analytical reviews on different central banks and kind of Fed watching and central bank watching. How did that shape your view on how markets work and and why Bitcoin could be an interesting alternative? Uh, well, it really, I mean, yeah, at the time when I started the internship, I think I was like 20, 19 or 20. Um, and at the time, at that point, like it was still obviously growing into young adulthood, but still uh, very much naive about the world and how it works. And I believe this is what a lot of people believe. Most people in the world is that the, uh, the central bankers, the people who control the money and the politicians are, are, know what they're doing and uh, have control and it's something you really don't question money just works it has worked uh, at least it seems to have worked uh, people get paid they can get cash out they go spend it um but uh as i again began working at this fund and studying economics in parallel and so again working at the fund of fund we we're managed futures fund trading currencies commodities and all the futures markets and so that means I had to know why currency markets were moving the way at, at, uh, that they were uh, in accordance with what we were trading in our fund. And um, so that meant I had to follow central bank tea leaves around the world, whether it be the ECB, uh, the Bank of Japan, uh, the Fed, obviously, uh, Bank of England. And uh, so just having to pay attention to uh, everything these central banks were doing and m- most importantly, the projections they were setting and the goals they were setting and uh, basically the, the solutions they were laying out that would, that would come to fruition because of their policies that uh, ended up not coming to fruition. And they kept uh, negging on uh, promises and projections that they had made and uh, young 20 Again, over the course of the three years, from like nineteen to twenty-two, it's like these people have no idea what they're doing, and, and um, it's it's it was a rude awakening, and it really then at the same time learning about Bitcoin really makes you think about what is money, um, and it's a question that I don't think enough people ask themselves, and it's definitely a subject that 
not enough people understand because if they did, uh, they'd be pretty pissed off with the state of money in the world right now. Yeah. And you've written in your newsletter and talked on the podcast about don't mess up the money as being a key um, thing to look back in on advice given in history. Um, and so, you know, you have a very impressive media empire that you're building uh, tales from the crypt, the, the, the uh, flagship podcast, and then you have the rabbit hole recap uh, with Matt O'Dell and then encourage people to check out the newsletter, the bent, uh, which comes out every day. What have you learned by just sitting down and writing each day and being able to get that message out to people who want to understand Bitcoin and it's it's very complex in a lot of ways, multifaceted. What what has been your experience there? Yeah, well, I think experience has been I've it's really helped me gather my thoughts and uh, really understand how I think about this stuff. And so that's how the newsletter started. And that's thank you for calling it media empire. I wouldn't, I wouldn't consider it an empire by any means. A humble, <laughs> humble little uh, network of of weird. Uh, internet money content, but uh, the original the original uh, publication, the band, the newsletter, they still write uh, every week. They actually got six days a week now. We have the Saturday, the Sat Standard. But I started that because uh, I wanted to prove that I could write about a product. So I just needed to prove to myself that I understood Bitcoin, that I could explain it to myself in writing, uh, and uh, Prove to because at the time I started the newsletter, I was unemployed and trying looking to get into product management. And I had to prove that I could write about a product, and Bitcoin was the product I chose to write about. Um, combine that with the fact that friends and family were texting me because I've been the guy in the Bitcoin for years, and they were like, What the hell's going on? And it got to an overwhelming point where I was like, All right, I need to write about a product. I'm gonna start this newsletter about Bitcoin. You all need to learn about Bitcoin put your email in, sign up for the newsletter and this is how I'll teach you. And that's how it started. And it's, it's snowballed from there. It took on a life of its own. And now, yeah. So today now it's, um, I feel a duty, uh, to attempt to describe the world of Bitcoin through my lens again. And just, and I try to make that very apparent and upfront. This is what I think, this is what I think of Bitcoin and how I view it based on the information I've received over the years, what I believe to be true, um, just to give people a perspective that they can then try to bounce, a perspective they can bounce their own ideas off of or um, just get them thinking in a certain way. Yeah, one great thing about your work is diving into some of the technical topics but making them easier to understand. So running your own node, you know, really looking at how distributed systems actually function on the technical level and a human level as well. Um, so you have the governance and everything. And I think when you look at how far we've come um, 10 years with 99.9% uptime, you look at the hard promises uh, that are afforded by the network. You look at, as you've mentioned um, advances in, in solar and different things on the energy front. Um, and so I think we've come a long way and we've kind of shaken out some of the ICO, some of the, the penny stock, a lot of the scams. Now there's some of them are still around. I think when I look at Bitcoin, I kind of have a list of 
of things that I tell people of why they should kind of just focus on Bitcoin so that the cap supply, the no trusted setup, anyone can run a node, cautious dev uh, process, most hash power does one thing really well, hard promises, proof, proof of work, but you can kind of go down the list. No KYC, no corporation, no pre-mine. Um, it's hard, you know, you can get one or two of these pieces with any given project, but you can't really, Bitcoin is the one that gives you all of these. Um, and I think it goes back to the immaculate concept conception that Dan Held has written about and you've talked about. How do you frame this conversation to people who are, who are just learning about it um, and, and they are interested, but they, they just need the, the tools to be able to understand it. It's hard. This is like the age old question for people of trying to educate others about Bitcoin and uh, specifically avoiding these scams, the affinity scams that have been created in its wake. I found that the greatest teachers, people have to uh, get burned by the stove. They have to, yeah, uh, get taken to the cleaners. That's usually the best teacher. But uh, yes, like I like so. For your audience out there who may not know who I am, I, I do believe Bitcoin's the only cryptocurrency worth paying attention to. I do believe the immaculate conception will never be replicated. You're never going to have the conditions that were uh, that were around when Satoshi launched Bitcoin. It's not going to be as pure as Bitcoin's launch. There's too much attention on the space at this point. Any uh, any launch of a cryptocurrency from this point on, in my opinion, would be bastardized. Maybe one interesting launch moving forward would be Nick Carter's recent um, recent uh, proposal for like a, uh, a fair distribution by first selling the ASICs that would mine the coin that would be launched. But even with that being said, I, I honestly don't think anything will ever overtake Bitcoin in the cryptocurrency realm because if it did, it sets a precedent that would destroy confidence in the, in the whole uh, overarching asset class, right? So Bitcoin is supposed to be a store of value that we can depend, depend on for centuries to millennia in the future. These cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin being the first successful imp- implementation of one and, and probably um, the only successful implementation potentially in the future. Like imagine like, so a big narrative is Ethereum could flip in Bitcoin in the future. And that's uh, cool for the Ethereum crowd to, to sort of harp on and bark on. But if they flip in Bitcoin, what's to stop them from getting flipping and like, what's to stop that coin from getting flipping at some point in the future, right? The whole idea of having bitcoin is that you don't have to worry about it you just hold on to bitcoin you know that's going to be a store of value into perpetuity um if you in the in the uh, egotistical and greedy uh, uh chase for wealth via the uh the easy signerage that is made possible by the open source nature of these cryptocurrencies uh, you attempt to overtake bitcoin you're going to again destroy confidence in the whole asset class because in my opinion, if that happens, you can never have confidence that any of these cryptocurrencies will be good store value into perpetuity. Yeah. And I think when you look at people framing the discussion, sometimes people bring up, okay, when you look at Facebook, well, before that you had MySpace and then you had Friendster and (laughs) 
what if uh, you know something else comes along? And I think that's uh, it makes sense of why someone would think that, especially VCs and people lo- looking at kind of how technology works with um, network effects and different platforms. But it's a really fundamental misunderstanding of Bitcoin being actual money and similar to a gold, let's say. And I think it's just a a wrong way to look at it. What's your views on that? Yeah, it's bad analogies. Analogies are terrible ways to make arguments and you can't analogize Bitcoin to websites. You have different network effects. You have different ways in which the system's distributed and people come to it. And uh, again, yeah, like you said, Bitcoin is money. It is the most important tool that exists on this planet for humans. It is one half of every transaction. Uh, it is going to have different market dynamics than social media websites. Yeah. And when you look at where we are right now with protests going on all over the world, I can't even name all of them. I saw a list. Some of them I didn't even realized that it was happening. I did a little more research and I was like, wow. But, you know, the big ones being Hong Kong, Venezuela, Bolivia, just to name a few. It seems like it's really a perfect storm brewing right now for Bitcoin. Looking at that, some of the unrest, and then looking at the monetary policy policies around the world with at one point we had 17 trillion in negative rates i know that's come down somewhere around maybe 12 trillion but it seems like this perfect storm is kind of brewing you know how how do you see this playing out i hope it doesn't get violent the trend seems like it's going that way though across the world which again i hope uh doesn't happen but again it's things are tense it seems and again like you said it's a perfect storm it's coming from all angles you have if we focus on money let's just focus on money not politics or any of it just the, mm-hmm. the money aspect of what's causing uh friction around the world it comes from many angles two main one hyperinflation so places like venezuela zimbabwe argentina where the people's money just doesn't work well it's bad money it is does not store value and preserve purchasing power throughout time and they are forced to flee to other currencies um so that's one cause from a money perspective that's one cause of friction and then the other is uh sanctions and uh, using weaponizing the u.s dollar the reserve currency of the world you have the u.s sanctioning huge countries millions of people hundreds of millions of people in total i would imagine um using their their our status there are, I'm an American. So using our status as the reserve currency of the world to sort of police the world and decide who can, um, and cannot transact with who, um, that's just going to naturally piss a lot of people off and starting to have people question in the mainstream, like who is the U S to dictate who can, uh, conduct commerce with each other. And so that, uh, that conversation coming to the fore as well, definitely, uh, bodes well for Bitcoin in the long run. Yeah, and one thing you do a great job of is not focusing on price and looking at all the other different metrics. Obviously, price is a concern for a lot of people and one metric that people look at. It also does help secure the network as the price grows for miners and just how the the system is set up. 
But when you look at the price comparable to other asset classes, you know, I think gold does make a lot of sense to compare because when you look at, you know, the, the similarities there um, with gold, you have that 5,000 year history, which, you know, is pretty undeniable. But with Bitcoin, you have pretty much everything except that with a lot of other benefits of the port, uh, the portability and then the verification being much, much easier. Um, so it's, it's really a better version of it. Now, talk about how you see, you know, is there a place for both and, you know, should we really be on the same page here and on the same team or, you know, how do you view that with millennials maybe preferring Bitcoin and gold being kind of that, that stone age kind of relic? The barbarous relic. No, I'm, um, <laughs> I'm a well, uh, well-known advocate of Bitcoiners and gold bugs getting together. We all have the, yeah. the same goals and the same ideals at the end of the day. We want sound money uh, that is open, sound free money that is uh, free on the market and not controlled by a central bank or government. We have the same goals in mind and the same principles at the end of the day. I do think gold is not going away. Again, it's 4,000 year Lindy and, even if it's not used as money, which I don't think will ever go away, I just I just don't see that happening. Uh, uh, it is culturally ingrained in in many uh, different countries and religions, and just uh, owning gold uh, by these people is not going to stop because Bitcoin exists. Uh, these people aren't going to stop owning gold because of that. Yeah, and when you look at India and other countries as well, a lot of the population stores their wealth in gold because of the issues with with the money, as you referenced earlier. I think the a great way to look at it, how I frame it to people, is just looking at the market cap. You know, it's been said many times before, but you have the eight to ten trillion um, market cap of gold and Bitcoin right now at something around one hundred to one hundred and fifty billion range is an interesting call option there as far as how much of the market cap it could capture. And then maybe in the future, even, you know, Bitcoin could, let's say, have a 10 trillion market cap and maybe gold has a, t- a 10 or 20 trillion market cap. You know, there's no reason it could take market cap away from even other assets uh, around the world. Yeah, yeah. Let's see. It's unknowable right now. But yeah, where, where does the, where did the store value flows leak from first? Do people dump their real estate for Bitcoin, gold for Bitcoin, stocks for Bitcoin, um, to, to preserve capital first. I would imagine they'd pick other assets over gold first, but yeah, we won't know um, until that time comes. Yeah, and what's your view on central banks buying, accumulating Bitcoin or, or governments around the world? So it's been talked about that from a game theory perspective, it actually behooves them to do so. Um, and obviously... The U.S. stores a lot of the world's gold, well, supposedly at uh, the New York Fed. I've actually toured it. They didn't. They don't let you get very far. They don't let you um, get floors under the under the basement. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, obviously Fort Knox. So going back to the to the point, you know, game theory on on why wouldn't uh, governments just start buying buying some up, even maybe not telling people about it. Yeah, I mean, I, w- I would put the probability of a government owning Bitcoin right now at like sixty percent, probably higher. Like, I, uh, there's no doubt in my mind. So, 
I would say 100. If there's no doubt in my mind, it would be 100%. But there is a little doubt in my mind. Eh, you know what? No, I'm going to say it. Governments own Bitcoin right now. Governments like Venezuela, uh, Iran, North Korea, Russia uh, probably own Bitcoin. Uh, Venezuela uh, is the highest on my list of probably owns Bitcoin. Um, That's because, again, uh, sanctions uh, have dictated that they cannot bring goods in via the traditional financial system and their hand is being forced. They have a lot of cheap oil that they have been known to use to mine Bitcoin. They've been known to confiscate Bitcoin mining operations to run them themselves. Um, There's rumors that Maduro is sending individual Venezuelans to local Bitcoins in the country and then having them send uh, the Bitcoin that they buy on local Bitcoins to wallets owned by the government. Um, So interesting. It, it, people, like it may, uh, governments probably already do old Bitcoin. And why should you? What is the game theory? Uh, the game theory is that you can't kill Bitcoin, and, and the only winning move is to play. Uh, so you either let your adversaries acquire a horde uh, and uh, and basically take advantage of Bitcoin's upward price appreciation over time, and you sit on the sidelines and miss out on that and potentially uh, are weakened from a geopolitical standpoint because of that, or you try to kill Bitcoin, um, uh, which is very hard, and then uh, actually proves that Bitcoin's worth something, so then reinforces the value proposition. Um, so again, why why would a central bank or a government own Bitcoin? Like I don't... Because uh, uh, it would be the only smart thing to do um, in this game theoretical uh, situation. Yeah. There's some speculation of China, maybe backing the Chinese one by, you know, partially backing it with gold. We saw, and you've written and talked about this as far as uh, the petrodollar and, you know, where that might be going in, in Russia and in China, looking at other assets besides the dollar. There was a famous uh, video clip with Ben Bernanke. Um, I think it was in front of Congress. Maybe it was Ron Paul t- being asked about, well, you know, why do central banks hold gold? And um, it was just interesting. And he said, well, basically it's just history and, and kind of just how, you know, tradition. And so I think it's interesting when you look at <laughs> central banks and governments hoarding gold, and it's like, well, why do they do that? <laughs> yeah, especially um, especially when the mainstream media uh, paints individual gold holders as preppers, as doomsday preppers, as crazy nuts that think the end of the world is coming. Uh, but yet when a government or a central bank makes the same personal decision to put the same asset on their, on their balance sheet there, I mean, I don't agree with Ben Bernanke, and I would think that a lot of other economists and people in finance out there would also agree with me that these banks aren't hoarding gold for nostalgia. Uh, They're holding it because it is an asset that has proven over time that it will hold value. And uh, and if times are getting risky, it's probably good to have gold in your asset. And since 2010, um, central bank gold accumulation has been positive every year with 2019 seeing the largest accumulation of gold by central banks since the 1970s when we went off the standard and had people freaked out. Um, uh, So this, again, in China and Russia, going back to your comments about them potentially uh, trying to create a currency that's partially backed by gold or uh, do 
uh, oil trades in their own currencies instead of uh, having to go through the petrodollar system. Uh, they seem to definitely be prepping for something. Over the last 20 years, Russia and China, uh, gold accumulation has been uh, pretty pretty impressive uh, on a global scale. If you go look at the charts, they've been very aggressively buying gold uh, for the first 20 years of the century. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of hyperbole that comes up in conversations where when Bitcoin gets brought up, then it's automatically okay, you're, you're prepping for Armageddon and you know, why would you want to have Bitcoin? You, you may as well have guns and canned food and things like that. Um, <laughs> so Bitcoin, you know, it, Bitcoin is not prepping for anything. Bitcoin is, you're not prepping for anything. You're not preparing for anything. You're taking control of your own life, control of your freedom in the digital age, of your monetary freedom in the digital age. Yes, you could say it's prepping as you're waiting for the price to go up, but really... Uh, if you own Bitcoin today, you have freedom, financial freedom that is not afforded to you in the traditional financial system. So you're not really prepping for anything. You're taking freedom into your own hands. And, and that's that's the investment thesis, right? Like as, as more and more people realize that they can, too can take their financial freedom into their own hands, they will decide to do that. And as a consequence, the price will go up and Bitcoin will become more valuable. <laughs> Yeah. And one thing that there's a lot of knock on effects here and different trends as far as millennials and as the millennials are actually getting older right now. But when you look at uh, Gen Z, as far as being affected by 2008, a lot of people saw uh, their parents maybe lose their house, uh, lose their job. And there's been this trend from millennials to really value saving more and, and, and value things like, okay, maybe taking a vacation or, or going for the avocado toast or something, but some premium things that you, uh, you know, whether it's coffee or, or good wine or something or a whiskey that you guys enjoy on the pod, but uh, you know, these premium items, but not just, you know, going out and charging up the credit card with crap and things that you don't use and enjoy. And you've talked about this kind of move to m- minimalism. You know, how do you feel about it? Yeah, it's a personal decision for everybody. I personally, I feel great about it. And I, I, I mean, I just trying to get to a spot where I, I, I consume less than, or yeah, I consume less than, than I bring in. And it's just a simple concept that, that, that was lost on a whole generation, it seems. Um, but with, granted, with that being said, the way the monetary system set up, it's not easy to um, achieve those goals uh, in the way the money is, the way the money works. Yeah, and I think obviously, especially the U.S. economy and the way the whole banking system is set up is for people to consume, 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 um, you know, and keep growing the numbers, just, you know, keep moving things up and to the right. Um, and you've talked about this in the past on your show and in some of your writings about you know, why is it that we have to grow the economy and just keep growing earnings, kind of growing at any cost, pretty much? Um, you know, is there a, is there a better way? And, and maybe are we are we beyond that point now? You know, to go back to kind of these smaller communities, small business, um, and and where you know goods and services are provided for a fair price, but you don't have to keep <laughs> raising the prices and growing the profits every quarter. 
Yeah, no, I'm a big believer in that we need to shift the KPIs. Uh, I'll speak for America specifically because that's where I live. Uh, yeah, I, I just think GDP as a as a core KPI, GDP and CPI as core KPIs uh, to strive for as an economy. Yes, they should be stuff you're paying attention to, but at the same time, if uh, growing your economy at a certain pace for an extended period of time means that you have 770,000 people die of opioid overdoses over the course of 20 years, you have suicide rates at all-time highs, you have life expectancy starting to fall because people are unhealthy, Uh, uh, you have... uh, the country is is severely obese. You just have these terrible, terrible consequences that are uh, uh, basically incentivized by the quarterly gross at all cost uh, beat your earnings estimate mentality that we have. Um, and that's a conversation I've been having more on my podcast, trying to reach out to people like Chris Arnade, uh, who wrote the book Dignity and is done a lot more uh, thinking and research on the, on the social aspect of this. A lot of the economists uh, and, and a lot of economics is, is looking at, at data, but data at the end of the day really doesn't do a good job at actually describing people and, and what their needs and wants are at the end of the day. And I don't think you can micromanage uh, human uh, uh, spontaneity. Yeah, and I think uh, when you look at one of my favorite podcasts is uh, Planet Money from NPR, and they did, this was a few years ago, did a really interesting podcast of how these prices are actually measured and people actually go out with a clipboard and start writing down, okay, this is the price of socks. Um, this is, a, you know, they go out to like grocery stores and places like Target and Walmart and like try to start tracking all this stuff. And sometimes I wonder if, whether the data that we're actually getting is, you know, how real is it and how accurate is it? And then like you've mentioned in the past, when you look at uh, CPI and P- PCE deflator, and when you look at all these things, you know, is it, is what they're measuring even accurate with the tools that they're using, um, you know, not counting food and energy in the, in the inflation uh, calculation? You know, I mean, that, that just seems crazy. And most people, wouldn't even know that until they dug in and and learned a little bit more about it. Yeah. The whole concept of hedonic adjustments is asinine. Like you're supposed to be benchmarking against something that you can track over time. And and so hedonic, the reason the CPI doesn't make any sense or is not a a valuable data point at all is because they perform what's called hedonic adjustments where they'll switch out the variables and adjust uh, the variables according to what they determine uh, is the right basket of goods to follow at any given point in time. And usually the way the hedonic adjustments, adjustments work out, it always, uh, or most of the time seems to favor the, the policy, um, that the fed is looking to pursue. Yeah. Yeah. And when you look at where, where we are right now, I should, mm-hmm. excuse me, I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say it augments the policy that the fed is looking to, um, to pursue it. It, it makes the situation look better than it is. That's a better way to put it. Right. And when you look at where we are right now, you recently had a couple of good shows talking about some of the repo issues. Um, I think it was Parker Lewis came on um, and it was pretty interesting to dig into that and and kind of hear his point of view and some of your comments. Uh, We've talked about it here, here on the show as well. And (laughs) 
it's getting to the point to where it it seems as though something is very wrong and, and possibly multiple things going on. How are you looking at just the repo issues based on what you've read and heard and talked about with Parker? Uh, they are extremely stress inducing, anxiety inducing. Uh, that's their, uh, it's, it's a very loud alarm that's going off right now. and has been going off since the middle of September. And yeah. so if you do, uh, and, and so when I did the episode with Parker, when I surmised, because uh, so let's go back and just quick synopsis, what happens September 5th, middle of September, at the exact date, you have the, the repo spasm where it spikes to eight to eleven percent overnight. And the Fed has yeah. been immediately. And we've printed what four hundred billion dollars since then. More, yeah, more at this point. Uh, yeah, uh, and so at that point in September, people are like, "All right, who needs liquidity?" Uh, about a month later, we learned that over the course of 2019, J.P. Morgan uh, embarked on a large balance sheet restructuring where they rotated out of. Um, uh, out of cash into longer term bonds. And uh, people are beginning to believe, as JP Morgan's one of the bigger primary dealers in the space, uh, that uh, they were the source of liquidity that was pulled from the market and was the reason why uh, liquidity needed to be injected in the repo markets. Uh, and then that's like, all right, well, who needed the liquidity? And then a month later, it comes out that. It's hedge funds that need the liquidity. Hedge funds trading leverage positions. Hedge funds like Millennium, uh, 0.72, I believe. A couple others uh, have been mentioned. And at that point, it's like, uh, all right, so the hedge funds need the liquidity. Is the Fed providing them liquidity directly from the window? And that's what Parker and I talked about. And Parker assured me that, no, there's a primary dealer in between the Fed and the hedge funds getting liquidity. So the the Fed technically isn't acting as a lender of last resort for these hedge funds, which yeah. I would, would argue is a terrible sign if that's the case. Yeah. yeah, and didn't someone from the Fed just come out within the last week well, or two yeah. talking about you know actually lending to hedge funds themselves? Yeah, so that's what I'm getting <laughs> to here. So Monday, the Wall Street Journal, yeah. Wall Street Journal citing Fed sources, so unnamed Fed sources. and Right. Um, they had some named hedge fund sources basically saying that uh, one of the tools that is on the table is yes, to take out the buffer between the fed and the hedge funds, which are the primary dealers and just make hedge funds, primary dealers to get direct access, uh, which is insane. So these people are going to be able to get money from the fed, the hedge funds to mm-hmm. fund their margin positions, which is, I mean, you have conspiracy theories about the Fed propping up the market. They're going to be pretty hard to deny if this is the case. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, back in 08, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs had to convert to basically a bank, a bank holding company in order to tap the discount window um, and to get some of those benefits. And now these kind of, sh- you know, investment banking firms that are on the other side, kind of on the risk side, um, Sometimes it's shadow banking and these different terms. You know, before it was okay. You have to convert to a bank, but now it's it's almost where they're just going to come in and, and just start bailing them out without having that, you know, change happen. Yeah. Um, one thing, yeah. Well, I was going to say another thing. So that's happening, and then uh, the people 
the great people at Peak Prosperity came out in late November and basically made the market aware of the fact that the Fed is directly monetizing the debt. They're issuing, they're issuing, or they're not issuing, the Treasury is issuing uh, bonds, uh, Treasury bonds that the Fed is then able to buy without it hitting the market first. So like you, you're able to prove this with the QSIP identification number. So that's another thing the Fed denies is that they're not directly monetizing the debt. Um, so MMT is technically here already. Like so, the Treasury is getting uh, it seems cash straight from uh, the Fed without the the uh, bonds, at least some some of the bonds that have been issued recently trading on the free market before they hit the Fed, which is supposed to happen. Yeah, and that's actually this kind of a central theme on the podcast here. Basically, low rates are actually harmful to the economy in the long term. So they create these perverse incentives around uh, retirees not being able to get the income they need. They they create weird incentives about businesses not having a impetus to borrow. Um and even people, things like mortgages and things and putting it off saying, okay, well, rates are going to stay low forever. And then creating this issue about zombie companies, maybe not, shouldn't be able to function, but they are. So all these different incentives. But one of the key points that we've zeroed in is exactly what you just mentioned is, okay, the Fed, the treasury issues uh, these bonds and um, the primary dealers you know, have them and the, the Fed basically goes in and starts buying from the primary dealers, push pushes yields down. And then, you know, once the Fed has this, these treasuries and BS and different things, they're, they're remitting all that interest back to treasury. Uh, so essentially, it's kind of issuing that debt for free. And it's been brought up on the podcast that, okay, the Fed could just buy <laughs> directly from the treasury and cut out the middleman of these primary dealers. But of course that technically, I guess that's not legal and it's not within their mandate, but essentially that's exactly what they're doing. Um, and that, that middleman is there, but you know, there's, there's kind of no point well, in, in arguing it differently. No, exactly. And that, that's the, it's crazy. You can like with the QSIP numbers, you can follow this. Like, so that's what peak prosperity proved. Like, so there's, you issue, I forget what duration of the bond was. It's a certain duration you issue it. It's supposed to trade. Uh, it's issued, then it's held off the market for four days, after which point it's supposed to, four or five days, after which point uh, it's supposed to free float on the market between the primary dealers and their customers at, after a certain pa- period of time, the Fed can then buy those bonds, right? Uh, so they're proving that the bonds are being issued, that four to five day waiting period before it hits the primary dealers is going. And then the first purchaser is the fed. So there's like, there's not, there's no free market float happening between the, the creation and the, the purchase of the bond. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, I think too, when you look at the balance sheet, it's been argued, you know, by the fed and, and others that what they're doing now isn't quantitative easing um, because they're actually buying these 30 day bills uh, these really short, this really short maturity stuff, which, you know, I understand that argument, but I also think that, you know, the balance sheet expansion, it's kind of hard to, to really pick it apart and, and call it something that's 
not going to be there when when you can see the balance sheet growing right there on the Fred uh, on the Fred website. They can't call it QE because it would look so bad, right? With these short, like they're just funding the repo markets with these short duration bonds, um, and the short lending uh, periods. Uh, if they were to call that QE, like it would be terrible because we'd be expected to keep buying those durations forever. They have to wait until they're officially allowed to posture that they're going to start buying longer term. Uh, debt um, to officially call a QE to make it seem like it's more uh, uh, planned out and, and and sort of long-term. Exactly. And before 08, the balance sheet grew organically off and on to around $800 billion. They took it all the way up to $4.5 trillion at kind of the peak. And then it was going to be like watching paint dry. It was going to roll off. <laughs> and I'm sure you remember that. Yeah, and now we're all the way back up to where we were, and um, and when you look at it, as you just mentioned, um, you know, let's say we have you know that next downturn, or or maybe we even don't, and then and then the Fed could come in and and double or even triple the balance sheet, and it's the question is is you know where does that end, and then and then that just encourages more more debt on the other side of the, of the balance sheet, as you mentioned, MMT or things that could be coming down the pike. MMT's here, baby. Already monetizing the debt. <laughs> you heard it here first. So, so let's transition and shift gears a little bit back to Bitcoin here, talking about the, how the lightning network is coming along the payment piece um, and talk about a little, how you see the store of value piece and the payments piece you know, can we have both and, and what's your vision there longer term? Yes, we can have both whenever you want. It's, it's just, it depends on the specific user and uh, their need at any particular point in time. Uh, it will definitely get better at the payments use case. So Bitcoin at the protocol level, if you hold UTXOs uh, and that's your modus operandi of interacting on the, the Bitcoin network that that level, yes, it'll always be uh, in the long run. If fees do rise and the network does become popular, it probably won't be a great uh, layer to uh, transact as a medium of exchange on. It's just the the nature of distributed systems, and if we want to keep the blockchain uh, within a manageable uh, uh, within a manageable size, so that individuals can download it and validate incoming transactions. Uh, we probably have to concede that uh, medium of exchange at the protocol level doesn't make much sense because to make it possible, actually, it wouldn't even, I don't, I don't even think it would be possible the way proof of work works and the, the nature of having 10 minute blocks and needing X amount of confirmations uh, before you can be certain that your, your confirmation is not going to get double spent or overwritten. Um, so the Lightning Network is a second layer solution that is working. Uh, to leverage Bitcoin's protocol layer and enable uh, quick and fast and instant transactions that are cheap, very cheap compared to the protocol level. Uh, Lightning, where it is right now, has far exceeded my expectations. I never thought it would be this far, this fast. I use Lightning, I would say at least once or twice a week to buy stuff. Like if uh, I got a book sitting on my table right now, it's cost $60. I use Lightning. It was uh, went through right away and no problems with the transaction. So it works at least for me, the way it's set up uh, with that being said, it has a very long way to go. Um, 
channel management is not easy and it's not for uh, your layman and your your average user is probably not going to be doing channel management the way I've been doing it up to this point, nor should they have to going forward. So stuff like that still has to get fleshed out. But I think overall, uh, it's been very successful up to this point. I'm very optimistic about uh, the innovations that are being made, the tools that are being built on top of it. You see developer developers coming into the Lightning Network and building tools for other devs so that they can build apps, which is a great sign. Um, and yeah, so I'm extremely bullish on, on lightning network and yes, we can have both whenever, um, it'll be better, uh, it'll be better for some use cases in the future as the technology gets more fleshed out. The stuff is going to take time. The people who think that we're going to be able to get everything out of the box right away really piss me off. It takes time to build software on top of that. This is a distributed open source software project, so you can add a level of uh of complexity to that um and like to think that bitcoin is going to be a perfect product even 11 years out of the box is just asinine but where it is today compared to where i thought it would be from a technical perspective is far beyond what i thought yeah and you've talked a little bit about the micropayments use case which i think is a one of the most interesting among among many others but whether it's reading an article for a few Satoshis, you know, a fraction of a penny, even listening to a podcast, anything like that. Um, and then there's talk about, okay, do we build a browser extension or how does that work seamlessly in the background? But do you think that's something that's maybe coming sooner rather than later? Um, microtransactions, they need their time. It needs time to get it fleshed out. But yes, I do think, yeah. And I think the problem with microtransactions is actually a Western problem and maybe just an American problem. Like we need to get used to QR codes here. Like if people get more used to pointing their phones at a screen um, and, and using QR codes uh, for UX flows, I, yeah. I think actually micropayments and lightning would have huge, uh, huge uptick in, in usage. And that's not a product of uh of lightning or Bitcoin being insufficient. It's a product of just like a UX experience, not coming to the Western world where you go to China, everything's run on QR codes. And I think honestly, like I think if that became more of a common practice, uh, everybody poo poos micro transactions now, but if you're, you're on wall street journal in the future and you want to buy an article for 10 cents, you click a button, the QR code pops up and you're able to just point your phone. I think that UX flow will draw on a lot of people lightning, but I believe that UX flow needs to come first. Yeah. I can't remember which country it was. I think I saw on Twitter of how in other countries, people are really used to paying for things with QR, QR codes, whether it's, um, what is it? Alipay and, and different apps around the world. But, uh, here in the U S that hasn't quite caught on yet. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. I don't know why it is it's just like, so on my website, if you go to tftc.io slash dime dash bag, um, we have a prototype of this and you click it. I love playing with it because you just click it. Uh, our, our site, I'm not very technical, so our site's slow as shit, but it, an invoice will eventually pop up and I can just point my phone at it, pay it. It's instant. And I get the content behind that little 10 cent paywall right away. It's just like a fun little experience. And, um, uh, again, I think uh, the UX of QR code scanning needs to become more common first. Yeah, yeah, I think um, you know that makes a lot of sense. 
So you know, wrapping up here, um, do you have any any thoughts about where you're looking for Bitcoin to get improvements and, and kind of what's happening this year on the technical side of things <laughs> or as far as development? Yeah, Bitcoin's hot out of the gate in 2020. I just tweeted this out. Like we got, so yesterday, Peter Willa, he, I think he officially is pushing the ball forward and asking for official BIP numbers for BIP Taproot, uh, BIP Schnorr, and BIP something, script maybe. Um, so these are, these are some technical upgrades that a lot of Bitcoiners have been uh, reviewing and very excited for for quite some time now. And it seems like uh, that is going to be uh, put up for uh, could potentially start activating those upgrades, which would be huge. It would, uh, uh, these are technical upgrades that would help Bitcoin become more uh, scalable, efficient, fungible, um, and, and, and extendable. Um, so that would be huge. Uh, on top of that, we're getting more and more derivatives products. Uh, options markets are, are blowing up right now. People are no longer using uh, shit coins to to uh, get a little alpha in the, in the cryptocurrency world. They're now realizing that options are probably or beta. Excuse me, I'm fucking mixing up my words. They're using options instead of shit coins uh, to make money using Bitcoin now. Um, so this is a very good uh, a very good um, uh, development in my mind. And then uh, yeah, lightning. I don't see development slowing down there at all, picking up pretty quickly. And then most importantly, uh, I think a big trend starting in the 2020s that we should be paying attention to and really need to focus on is distributing mining away from China and more into the Western world. And I do think that is uh, starting to happen. Um, so that's something I'm, I'm very excited to to continue following as as the year goes on. Well, that's great, Marty. This was uh, this was really fun. Um, for anyone who wants to learn more about Bitcoin development and interesting macro trends around Bitcoin and and other things, encourage people to sign up for the Bent newsletter. We're going to link everything in the show notes, but tell people where they can find you and follow your work. Yeah, best place to find me is on Twitter at Marty Bent. Um, you can check out all my content on our website at tftc.io. You can also subscribe there if you want to join the, the newsletter um, on any podcast app or Tales from the Crypt, a Bitcoin podcast. You can check us out there as well. And then, yeah, again, Twitter is the, probably the best place to find me. Great, Marty. Well, this was fun and I appreciate you coming on. Appreciate you having me, Ryan. I really, really had a great time. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can also support the show for as little as a dollar a month through our Anchor website. Just go to www.jellydonutpodcast.com. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter, at jellydonutpod, or you can contact us via email at jellydonutpodcast at protonmail.com. As a reminder, 
All opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or advice.